This episode of The Cutting Room is sponsored by Grass Valley's Edia 6. It's great for editing news, sports, entertainment, and documentaries. Check out the new Edia 6 at www.grassvalley.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and this is part two of my interview with Walter Murch. Walter Murch is a film editor and sound designer and has worked on some of the most important films of the last 40 years. Some of the films include Apocalypse Now, The Godfather Trilogy, The English Patient, and Cold Mountain, among many others. He has also written in the blink of an eye, which has become part of most universities' reading lists. But enough about his background, you already knew all this. Here's part two of my interview with Walter Murch. The mentorship uh, that used to exist in the cutting room seems to be disappearing with assistance. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the role of the assistant and how it's uh, disappearing with the advancement of technology? Um, well, yeah, uh, it, you know, certainly 20 years ago it would not be uncommon to have four people in the cutting room. Um, now uh, you might have two um, and sometimes even, even less. It's, uh, you know, it's tricky because the state of mind of the film editor uh, is a different kind of mind than the assistant. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're focused on different things. So the, the danger is that if we do away with assistants entirely, the editor is going to be uh, unnecessarily weighed down with a state of mind which is not necessarily conducive to um, creative work. What's, uh, what's available now to uh, people to learn how to edit, which was never available before, is uh, that they can easily download material into an editing platform and practice it themselves. Whereas, uh, you know, if you were starting out as an editor 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, film itself was so expensive, especially well-shot film. How could you get hold of that stuff? It was just uh, either you couldn't get hold of it or even if you could, it would be too expensive. And then the machines themselves were tremendously expensive. Now, you know, if you have a laptop, you can have a very sophisticated editing system on that for free uh, or for a couple of hundred dollars. Uh, and then you can get material onto the laptop that you can practice editing on um, for, um, for almost nothing. Yeah. So yes, the mentorship situation of an editor working with an assistant is uh, maybe not as common as it used to be. Certainly there aren't cutting rooms now with six or seven people mm -hmm. in the cutting room, which there could easily have been in the old days. Uh, but in those days, the, many of those six or seven people would simply be you know, doing really rote mechanical jobs, which isn't what mentorship is all about. Yeah. You know, they would be reassembling rolls of work print back into their original form, minus the shots that had been taken out. So as all of these things evolve, there are uh, disadvantages that arise, but they're compensated for by, mm -hmm. by other advantages. 
Now, you've discussed using a reel-to-reel -reel recorder at the age of 11 to experiment with sound. Uh, in interviews, you've discussed sort of the pureness in these recordings and the original experiments. Uh, how do you, as an editor, continue to experiment? Uh, you know, you have to be af not be afraid of making mistakes. You know, the, a good way of uh, analyzing within yourself the borderline between your inner uh, technician and your inner artist is that uh, te technicians learn to avoid mistakes and artists learn to make use of them. Um, so I, I just o over the, all the years that I've been doing this, I've constantly tried to put myself in situations where I'm a little bit outside of my comfort zone, um, where mistakes are almost inevitable because I'm not completely familiar with what I'm doing. Um, but when they do happen, um, I try to minimize the damage from them and then take advantage of the positive aspects of a mistake because you know, mistakes are only uh, uh, negative things in a certain context. If you change the context, what's negative in one context can become positive in something else. Uh, in the conversations, you propose this idea of film notation. Have you taken this idea any further? Um, and I was wondering if you could elaborate on the idea and maybe how it might be able to be, or might be mm -hmm. used with uh, pre-written EDLs or script sync in Avid um, as, as a prediction for the finished structure. Mm -hmm. Um, I've continued to think about it, um, and it's, it's provocative. Uh, you know, we, the, the question is, uh, you know, if, well, the analogy with, with musical notation is that before uh, 1100, there was, people just hadn't ever thought about, uh, let alone worked out, uh, whether you could write down music. Mm -hmm. And if you were trying to spread a certain kind of music, that meant uh, that you had actually had to go from monastery to monastery and you know, sing the chant. And you know, it, it was a very slow diffusion and inefficient. And uh, responding to that, uh, the monks began to come up with some way of noting this down, where all you'd have to do is send a piece of paper and instructions for it, and then it could happen. Um, I don't know what the equivalent uh, of that would f with film would be, but right now, when we make film, we basically, uh, a director has to kind of encourage the actors to do what is right for the film by a sort of uh, presence and not quite imitation, but uh, there, there's no way to write down what it is that you want the actors to do, mm -hmm. other than uh, suggestions that you make it angrier or make it more sympathetic or slower. Um, so um, the closest I've come is a certain uh, uh, analogy uh, with the uh, with the use of the hexagrams in the I Ching. And you can, using those as, as a little uh, notation, that can indicate certain things about the, the, uh, the body language in a shot and the positions of the actors relative to the frame. But it's very, um, 
schematic at this mm -hmm. point, and it, it's curious to think about, but I don't know where it's going to go. Because when I, when I first read about that, I thought about, um, and he didn't talk about notation, but Eisenstein's metric mm -hmm. approach to montage, where almost like a musical score, right? You yeah. fit beats in and yeah. what have you. So editing can be very organic uh, process, and some editors might view themselves as a cook or some as gardeners. Um, and would you say that beekeeping has an effect on your process as an editor? Um, well, I just uh, the the only analogy uh, that comes immediately to mind is this: um, um, the the process that you have to go through if you're moving a beehive. Um, if you uh, if you have a hive and you move it six feet to the left overnight. When the bees leave the next day, they'll get very confused because they'll expect the hive to be where it was. Mm -hmm. um, if you uh, move it incrementally, just four inches a night, each time they get used to it, uh, and so they don't get disoriented, and you can actually move it six feet, but only by small increments. Mm -hmm. um, if you, on the other hand, if you move the hive two miles away, they're so disoriented when they come out in the morning that they reprogram themselves, and then you allow the hive to be in that location for a week or so, and then you move it back to its original location, but six feet to the left, then they'll reprogram themselves again. So there's, there's some analogy there between uh, that sort of uh, uh, orientation of the beehive and how we process uh, the, the incremental differences in from frame to frame mm -hmm. um, and how we think of things as being jump cuts or not. If, if the displacement from shot to shot is not uh, is small, then we experience that as continuous motion. Mm -hmm. If it's huge, then we experience it as a cut. For, you know, if I'm shooting you and then in this direction, uh, we as we watch the film, we, without even being aware of it, we think, oh, now we're looking into the left, uh, away from the light, and now we're looking to the right toward the light. Uh, we can handle this kind of stuff. What seems to trip us up is when the shift uh, on the cut is big but not too big. Mm -hmm. That's when we experience it as, a, as an awkward jump cut. So. That's the analogy that I have to make with the bees. <laughs> now, editing is a craft uh, which very much requires you to be in the present, uh, in the moment with the audience. As a person with a, a wealth and a passionate interest and fascination, do you ever have trouble remaining in the present while you're working? And how do you fix that or get back into the present if you? Well, it's the balance uh, between, I guess, a certain kind of uh, objectivity, which is what are we really doing here, mm -hmm. uh, and the subjective uh, process of really being immersed in it. And there, there ultimately has to be some kind of balance between those two things. Uh, what I've uh, what I've found uh, that works for me is that um, I try to uh, 
at certain times plunge myself even deeper into a sort of subjectivity um, rather than trying to step back completely for the film, which is almost impossible. Mm -hmm. You know, so you, you really can't do it. Uh, so the, the uh, analogy that I use in, in thinking about this kind of stuff is that you're swimming in a fast-moving river and you're trying to keep your head above water and try to make progress and hope you don't crash into a rock and you know all of this stuff and you think oh if only I could get up on shore and look at what the river's really doing here then I'd know what to do but that's dangerous and most times when you most people drown when they're trying to clamber out of something you know that's when they get caught up on the rocks and really bad things happen mm -hmm. so I tend to stay in the river, and rather than resist it, swim along with the current. Mm -hmm. um, and in a strange sense, sometimes that um, plunging even more into subjectivity, really getting deeply into it, uh, allows you to achieve the same ends as you would if you were looking at it objectively. It's, it's kind of like um, you know people who are so far uh, to the right wing politically, that they're almost <laughs> like the left wing, yeah. you know? Um, now, many creative people, particularly authors or directors, when they're finished with a project, um, after working on it for years or in months, uh, get a sense of loss. Uh, with your considerable involvement with films, have you ever experienced that, that type of problem? Sure. No, it, it, it's that's happens at the end of every project. There's a um, uh, uh, you know you come very quickly up with the fact of how deeply as we were talking about before the, with this subjectivity, how deeply you've been involved in this project, and then suddenly it's gone, and you you uh, the whole basis on which you've been operating for the last year or whatever it is, is suddenly taken away and it's, it's still disorienting. Um, I've, I've gotten more used to it over time. Uh, well, I, I know that it's going to happen. Uh, it's still disorienting, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm prepared for it because I know it's going to happen. It still has an effect on me, um, but uh, I just think it's an inevitable part of the creative process. I mean, I think novelists feel the same thing, you know, uh, musicians, it's, it's uh, just a, a common part of the process. Right. Now, I have one question that I, I like to ask all the editors, and it's more of a, a fun question, and that's, uh, what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Oh. <laughs> uh, don't have one. No? Don't have one, no. Well, because no. you, don't, you don't watch TV, you no. don't have a TV yet? No. Okay. Well, thank you very much for okay. letting me interview. My pleasure. Thank it's you. Great meeting you. Sure. Thank you. That was part two of my interview with Walter Merch. I'd like to thank Walter. I'd also like to thank this episode's producer, Brian Atkinson, and the sounded cameraman, Tej Babra. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.